Stasi poetry circle. It sort of sounds a little bit like like a joke. It, it's a bit Monty Python, but I felt um, I wanted to sort of tell a story that brought out the comic as well as the horrific aspect of that absurdity. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. In 1982, the East German Ministry for State Security is hunting for creative new weapons in the war against the class enemy. And their solution is stranger than fiction. Rather than guns, tanks or bombs, the Stasi develop a program to fight capitalism through rhyme and verse, winning the culture war through poetry, and the result is the most bizarre book club in history. I speak with Philip Altman, the author of the Stasi Poetry Circle. Philip has used unseen archival material and exclusive interviews with surviving members to tell the incredible hidden story of a unique experiment weaponizing poetry for politics. Now, if you think there's a vast army of research assistants, audio engineers and producers putting together this podcast, you'd be wrong. The podcast relies on your support to enable me to continue to capture these incredible stories and make them available to everyone for free. Hi, this is Tree from Berlin. I decided to support Cold War Conversations with a monthly subscription for a couple of reasons. I believe it's so important and interesting to hear these stories from that period, good and bad. Books will tell you so much, but the real-life stories from people who were there make it so real. Sometimes you feel like you are there experiencing these times in history. If you'd like to help me to preserve Cold War history and enable me to continue to produce this podcast, you can via a one-off or monthly donation. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more details. You can also join our Facebook discussion group where the Cold War Conversation continues between episodes. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. I'm delighted to welcome Philip Alterman to our Cold War Conversation. This book intrigued me. Stasi is always a popular subject amongst the listeners, but poetry wasn't uh, the word that I was expecting to be uh, linked to the uh, the, the Stasi. But um, we'll we're, we're get into that in a moment. I think the best way to start this is to almost go back to the beginning of the GDR. And I wanted to ask you about the GDR and their, their policies towards arts and culture. I think this is a sort of an aspect of East Germany that even to me as uh, as a German, I was I was born in West Germany, I was born in 1981, so, um, you know, I, I didn't, I was very young when the war fell. Uh, but even to me, uh, growing up in Germany, literature or the cultural tradition of East Germany was one that I wasn't very aware of. Um, I, mean, I think East, East German culture isn't something that has been absorbed into the reunited Germany very well. It's it's often been sidelined. So I think um, so. This is a sort of the the story of how much culture mattered to East Germany was one that I only discovered while researching this book, and I felt was worth telling, and I felt was best told in a way by the story of. Uh, an expressionist uh, poet called Johannes R. Or R. Becher, who um, was a uh, was a communist. He was in exile during the Nazi era, and he returned after the uh, after the end of the Second World War. And he, um, to him, I think he very much believed that the the sort of the Nazi era at its worst was summed up. By the Nazis' treatment of of culture, that the Germany had this incredible cultural heritage, this tradition of Kultur, of high thinking, of great writing, and uh, uh, a great philosophy that they had uh, kicked into the dust. And he very much saw it as the mission of East Germany to build a state that would give due respect to this to this to this culture. 
And I think one of the interesting things is that um, to an extent they listened. I mean, uh, so he Becher was was one of a sort of coterie of um, poets, most of them former expressionists, uh, which may or may not be significant, um, who were then actually uh, given uh, functions in this state as ministers, as ambassadors, um, uh, and, and so on. Um, and in the really early phase of uh, of the sort of East Germany being being built up, um, uh, there was a sort of you know there, uh, to an extent, artists and writers had a privileged status. Some of them got uh, special food vouchers. I think there were sort of special um, stores where they could shop, where maybe the intelligentsia could could shop. But um, uh, Becher was was made uh, culture minister, and he um, he he had this idea. I mean, he he wrote in in very utopian terms about what he believed East Germany should should do. That it should it would be a state where culture would have the standing of a of a Großmacht, of a supreme power. It would be equal to uh, politics rather than being instrumentalized by politics that was his his idea and uh and he developed this into into a sort of into his well, his thinking went into sort of channels that actually policymakers could 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 use so um so the the, the marxist way um of thinking about labor was that there was a under capitalism, there was a division of labor that trapped people in doing one specialized job. And the supposed great promise of communism was that these, under communism, these divisions would fall away and people could, could do as they wished. They could do, uh, you know, um, as Marx, I think, said, uh, I'm slightly summarizing, uh, paraphrasing here, but they, they could herd cat- cattle in the morning and then write philosophical essays in the in the evening so um even though um johannes becher died of cancer um in the uh, in the early 60s um his ideas in this respect of how this trait sh- uh, how this new state should uh, treat culture did Find their way into policymaking. So there was a program named after the uh, the town of Bitterfeld, where there was a cultural summit, um, which is called the, this program was called the Bitterfelder Weg, the Bitter, Bitterfeld Path, and and that program uh, uh, foresaw that there would be writing circles in uh, in every branch of industry or in every factory. Um, and that uh, writers would would come in to these factories, they would work there, but also teach the workers how to write. So to achieve this to to this perfect balance between um, brawn and brain, between between uh, uh, writing and, and and working, and to sort of um, cross the divide between uh, the proletariat and the intelligentsia. So that was that was a sort of I think one. Utopian, but but at the beginning, at least, quite serious mission statement that was part of uh, of the, the founding years of, of East Germany. From my sort of reading of of the book, the, the GDR really thought that art and culture brought out the best in people, and and certainly I remember from visiting East Germany in the late nineteen eighties, the subsidies that were thrown at well uh, concert halls and theatres were were massive to be able to you know allow the greater population to experience arts and culture at a very affordable price yeah and i think you know there were there were um tickets you know uh, designated for for workers for each factory would would receive uh, uh theater tickets um that could allocate to workers um there was a um, decree passed um, that made sure that every factory ha- uh, of a certain size um, had had a, a library. You know, if it had X amount of workers, it would have to be a, a 
part-time librarian once that had more than, I think, more than a thousand workers who had to have a full-time librarian. So this was really, you know, it took it, it, it took literature incredibly seriously. Becca is is probably more known to the listeners of Cold War Conversations as the guy who wrote the lyrics for the East German national anthem. That's right. Yeah, I mean that's that was his. Uh, I mean, I, I think one of the remarkable things I found is, I mean, Becher isn't a name, a household name anymore um, in, in Germany. It certainly wasn't to me and certainly isn't to anyone uh, younger than me. And what I found is that while he was someone who was in every library, in every bookshop um, on display uh, in, in East Germany, he also wasn't read very passionately by by anyone I've I met, um, I think I, th- I think there was a you know he had a his political influence was perhaps greater than his 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 literary uh, legacy. Well, let, let's get on to the uh, the the sort of the the crux of the story, which is the Stasi decide that they want to also have a writing circle alongside you know the the factories and all the other enterprises in East Germany. And this was called the Working Circle of Writing Czechists, um, which hardly rattles off the tongue, but I was delighted to see The Guardian had headlined it as the Red Poets Society in the uh, best uh, tabloid style almost. But can you just tell us what, I mean, what what was a Czechist? So um, Czechist is how the Stasi internally referred to itself because it was... uh, the Stasi had modelled itself on the on the Cheka, on the uh, Soviet Russian secret police, and it very much had you know its own mythology. It it uh, paid homage to a Soviet Russia secret police. Um, so the um, the paramilitary compound in East Berlin, where this this um, uh, poetry, this Red Poet Society, the the writing Czechists, where they met, was the Felix Jajinsky Regiment, the Wachregiment, uh, Felix Jajinsky being the, the founder of the, of the Cheka. Uh, so yes, the, the Stasi got in on this program pretty early on in the, uh, in the 1960s in a slightly haphazard, sporadic, uh, fashion, I would say, um, from, from what I could glean from the archives, there were sort of irregular Meetups throughout the 60s and 70s in this guards uh, regiment compound in, in Adlershof. They had a culture house. I mean, it was, a, it was quite a vast regiment with all sorts of amenities, uh, including a house for, house of culture. And there seemed to have just been sort of lyrical evenings where, where people read out some of their poems and, um, and that was it. There was, um, the odd anthology published. Um, I, I think two, uh, uh, well, one, one in the 1960s and one in the 70s. Um, but, but really just on a, it's just, I mean, I, I saw the booklet. It's quite a flimsy little booklet. Some of them aren't even, haven't even got the authors, the poets' names in them. And the, the poems are sort of, I mean, yeah, like pretty, um, uh, they're, they're not even political, which is, I mean, you'd expect them perhaps to be political, but at that stage, they they weren't. I mean, a lot of them are just love poems. Some of them slightly comical. Um, you know, um, border guards dreaming of writing "I love you" into the night sky with with their searchlights, or um, sort of uh, one poet uh, talking about um, yeah, his love and <laughs> how he wishes that his love uh, for uh, he says, "I want you to be mine, just mine," and I hope. Uh, my love will never be uh, um, uh, nationalized or collectivized. So, I mean, <laughs> certainly not not taking the, the state's official ideology very seriously at that stage. So, yeah, this is that um, it was something that they they did sporadically until something happened in the 1980s. Um, from what you can see in the files, suddenly they started taking it very seriously from around 1982. And that's sort of where the story got interesting to me because I was trying to work out why. 
what happened in that period that made them take it more seriously? Because they tried to sort of professionalize the the circle a bit more, didn't they? Yeah. So they um, in nineteen eighty two, the the Stasi approached this um, widely published professional uh, poet called Uwe Berger, and they asked him to run this circle because they felt they wanted to um, officially in the in the files they said they wanted to improve the quality of the works produced in this circle. And um, the whole thing acquires a bit more rigor. They 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 meet for the next seven years. Um, they meet uh, once a month for two hours from four to six in the same building. These sort of lessons have a clear structure where the Stasi's men, Stasi men come in and uh, read out their poems, and uh, and Uwe Berger, their teacher, uh, gives them some feedback on the formal structure of how you structure a poem it teaches them what a what a rhyme is what is a cross rhyme what is a what is free verse what is a what is i am an iambic pentameter uh what is meter and and so on so something something happens um and it's not i mean you could you could just i mean one explanation uh would just be that it's you know perhaps it was continuous with um with the the great um utopian vision of um of Johannes Becher, um, that uh, this was a state that would, the way even the secret police would take art very seriously. And why would you not have some offer? I mean, this was a paramilitary compound for people whose private life, lives were, were well, the Stasi was, was, was a little bit nervous about their private lives of, of, of its own staff because they didn't want to them to mingle uh, with, with everyday folk. And they certainly didn't want them to be tempted by contact with people from the West. So it needed to provide some sort of entertainment and why not let that be a, a poetry workshop? That's the, that's the innocent explanation. And, and were they, you know, looking to use these poems as a form of propaganda or anything like that? Or was it purely sort of just to keep the, the Stasi folk entertained and to try and get them more interested in highbrow literature? One thing that I found striking is so this this teacher Uwe Berger, he sort of seemed to have fallen back on a on a parallel idea from the from the founding years of of East Germany about what literature what the relationship between literature and politics should be. So we I mentioned Becher before the idea that lit, art and politics should be equal partners, and then you had uh, another important poet, Friedrich Wolf, who became East Germany's ambassador to Poland, uh, another staunch communist. But Friedrich Wolf had a slightly different idea of what that relation would work. Basically, he said, I mean, he famously coined uh, uh, the phrase, uh, Kunst ist eine Waffe, art is a weapon. Uh, and he said, it's the, it's, it's the job of the artist to forge this weapon, this weapon from the from the iron of of the age, and the proletariat has to pick this up. So basically, he said, art has to be is a, is a tool; it is a weapon. So uh, he he believed that um, that that you know that relationship was a little bit less equal. Um, and Berger seems to have fallen back on this idea um, that he very much believed that poems had to be sort of almost like marching songs; they had to uh, rouse the emotion. They had to inspire belief in the Soviet Union, belief in uh, uh, in, in Marxism, and to sort of foster hatred towards the class enemy. So he, he that's what I think um, comes comes out from from what I've, the, the files I saw that he had a, had a slightly different, less utopian perhaps idea of uh, of what poetry should do. I mean that he did to an extent. I mean it's. It, it sounds like a joke to say that poetry could be a secret weapon, but this idea that art is a weapon, it did swing through East German uh, history. It was a sort of phrase that was used again and again and again by by the Stasi. Friedrich Wolf, whose son um, Markus Wolf, of course, was became East Germany's most famous spymaster. Um, Friedrich Wolf wrote a pamphlet a portrait, a sort of 
an, an ode to uh, Felix Jaczynski that was uh, distributed around uh, to, to everyone who was in this um, paramilitary uh, unit and which, which contained that idea that, that, that art is a, is a weapon. Mm. So the question is, you know, what was this weapon, I mean, directed against? You know, what was it, what was it meant to do? Um, because these poems were not published. There was, it wasn't like the, the case that they wrote poems that they were then read out on radio or um, handed out to every household in, in East Germany. That wasn't the case. These were... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more produced for Stasi consumption, these poems. They were, um, they, 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 they printed a couple of anthologies, but, you know, they were printed at um, 1,500 copies or something, so they weren't meant to be for population at large. So if, if art or poetry was a weapon, I th this isn't something that the, the Stasi spelt out in its files, but I think it's pretty, uh, well, there's certainly evidence for what, what this circle ended up being, being used for. I think it's interesting because the West did use culture to some degree as a sort of a weapon as well. I mean, the CIA were financing front cultural organizations to try and portray the West as, um, you know, a utopian society uh, around culture as well, perhaps not in the way of uh, getting their soldiers to write poems and, and uh, form writing circles. But, you know, I think culture, the, the battleground of culture through the Cold War is an interesting um, story that I've not really investigated that much. There were journals all, all around the world, um, often beautifully designed literary journals, which attracted some quite, um, I mean, well, attracted or they deliberately brought in some, some quite high-profile literary figures of the, of the sort of centre-left I think the, the CIA had a sort of an idea there to was it engaged in a similar culture war that was perhaps more covert. I mean, the, the Stasi spelt it out what they wanted to do um, in East Germany. From I mean, it was interesting because in so nineteen I think nineteen sixty six the this uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom that was sponsored by the CIA is unmasked. Uh, in the New York Times, they um, they reveal that it was a sort of um, front organization. But if you look at the mentions in the East, East German newspapers that I looked at, I was I was just struck by how they. I mean, that was the line from the beginning. I mean, <laughs> these sort of cultural um, propaganda efforts uh, became perhaps less influential. I mean, there was this 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 German literary magazine Der Monat, which was after the scandal was was ended then relaunched but it wasn't it wasn't very influential so by the 1980s when the stasi suddenly reembarks on this culture war um, and it becomes very convinced that i mean there there are these internal reports that are produced by the stasi's own think tank where they decide that anyone who works in the culture sector is extremely susceptible to um, to infiltration or, or uh, attempts of uh, by the West to be sort of um, to, to be lured over to, into their way of thinking, even though at this point, they, I mean, I could not find any known sign, uh, any 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 records of their of that being a concerted concerted effort on the behalf of the West. It seemed yeah. to be more of a case of 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 a, of a sort of growing paranoia in in East Germany in the nineteen eighties. 
You know, there's a lot of little nuggets in this book, which I really enjoyed. And one of the ones that I did pick out was, and I wasn't aware of this, was this thing called the Little Political Dictionary, where the GDR are trying to attempt to control the language that's used within uh, East German society. So this is one of the, because one of the phrases in there is one that I've heard before, is the, you know, calling the Berlin Wall the anti-fascist rampart. Yeah, the, or the yeah anti-fascist protection wall or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So they're shots by. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating little document. Do you want? If you, do you want me to get it off my shelf? Is that I'd useful? love to see it. Definitely. Das yeah. kleine politische Wörterbuch. Yeah, the little little. Wow, little it's a chunky. It's huge. Yeah. Very. Wow. Um, I really, you know, I mean, you know, it's not just a little guidebook with a couple of um, uh, key words. I mean, it, it, it just tries to reformulate the meaning of <laughs> any word you can, you can imagine. Um, I mean, uh, and sometimes to an absurd degree, I mean, yeah, the, anti, uh, the, the war was sort of redefined. It defines peace as something that uh, essentially is only pursued by the, uh, by the East. It's, it's, uh, there's, a, there's an entry on what a political opposition is, and it says there's something that they have in, in capitalist societies, but um, in socialist or uh, communist societies, you don't need to have a political opposition because um, uh, all these conflicts have already been resolved and mm. um, the, the, the workers are, are in charge and in, in charge of the, the, the means of production. So you don't need an opposition. So, I mean, there the, are these sort of little mini arguments that are sort of like, hey, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, it's a fascinating little document and just in it because it shows you that um there was a sort of struggle for what words m meant that was going on under the surface and i think that's something that's uh, really interesting also about the the stasi that i think you know the, the, so the stasi when it's when it when it is built up after the second World War, it tries to recruit predominantly people from working class backgrounds. And Eric Mielke deliberately says, um, I don't want, you know, I don't want clever people who just know, who know I don't want know it all. I want people who deliver results, you know, who can fight battles and win them. Um, and that's, that's a sort of recruitment policy at the beginning. It's also then very paranoid about these people with their clever um, uh, degrees and learnedness. And I think that's one, one thing that is also important to understand about East Germany, that it was a, I mean, it was a very literary society, but it was, it was also perhaps because it was constantly uh, referencing canonical texts not just in literature, but also in politics. It was it was referencing Marx. It was uh, 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 or you know the writings of Lenin. But they, they, these were sort of origin core texts, and then you had a political class that was the authorized interpreters of these of these texts. Mm. Um, so, whenever there were intellectuals or people who could read the same text and get a different meaning out of it, that was very unsettling and subversive and something that the Stasi in particular was, was, was sort of, I think, quite, quite paranoid about, um, which is why it, it pursued Marxists who just wanted a different kind of Marxism, but also why it became increasingly nervous about what these writers were doing, which it didn't understand sometimes. I mean, the, so this think tank, it's a very Western word, but I'm just going to use it. It produces a, uh, a sort of yeah report on 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 these uh, literati and and it sort of just says you know these people they employ uh, these sort of camouflaged techniques like um metaphors and uh, fables uh, which which you know just standard techniques i mean that's that's what creative writing is but you know in itself creative writing became suspicious one of the other aspects I enjoyed in the book was that you, you did explore some of the lives of people who were uh, not directly involved in the state. And I found particularly interesting the story of Anna Gret Gollin, 
and how the Stasi pursued her. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think she was someone whose story I sort of came across by accident while I was researching this book, and I spent a lot of time. So I you know, I tracked down people who were in this circle. I tracked down poems from the Stasi Records uh, archive. I tracked down their f- files, their CADA files, and so on. Um, but I was sort of quite aware that I was, in a way, only telling one side of the story, which was the, the story of the perpetrators or the, the, the people with power. And um, I sort of needed to understand, get a better idea of, of their victims. Um, and so this, this woman, Anna Grigolin, um, just struck me as a really interesting character because she, in a way, she, because she was very normal. I mean, she was... Um, uh, she was just someone who wrote poems as a student. Well, I mean, you know, as a, as a, as a, when she was still at school, um, she was someone who wrote uh, a lot um, and who she was, I mean, she was a sort of someone who um, got into trouble with her teachers, with her parents, um, and incre- increasingly with sort of other authorities as well. But um, uh, in, no, in normal circumstances, this would have not been... <laughs> An undue problem, but the, she was eventually arrested and and put into prison over a collection of poems that weren't even published. So these were poems that she had copied out into her uh, little notebooks and given to some friends whose parents were in the Stasi and passed them passed these poems on to to the Stasi. And in when after she was arrested, she was you know, uh, interviewed dozens and dozens of times about the meanings of these poems, uh, which is just, uh, just seems so utterly uh, absurd because, you know, these are just, I mean, they're, they're sort of like punk lyrics or something. I mean, they're just, you know, I mean, she's angry with, with the country that she, she lives in, but that somehow the state deemed it, you know, the state that was, was, was so afraid of someone like, like this that they would uh, put her into prison. Over this, I mean, there were other reasons why the, the Stasi was interested in her. I mean, she was sort of part of of a you know of a, of a, a youth subculture um, of young kids who like to go hitchhiking um, around East Germany and go to um, rock and blues concerts and, and wore long hair and flares. And some of them didn't didn't want to work, um, which was you know always a bit of a Saw point for uh, the workers' paradise of of East Germany that um, you know promised to guarantee work to everyone, but it didn't quite know what to do with people that didn't want to work. Uh, so there were there were other reasons, perhaps why um, uh, why this why the Stasi was was sort of interested in in her and saw her as as a troublemaker. But um, uh, the fact that in the end it was these poems that she was charged over just uh, just seemed so. Um, yeah, so so utterly uh, absurd. Also, because you know she she seemed to be, you know, like many of these dissident writers or dissident writers. I mean, not them. Most of them didn't want to be dissidents, but um, uh, many of them were entirely in keeping with the sort of utopian idea philosophy of, of East Germany that that Becher had tried to articulate and really believed in that that uh, writing did did good. <laughs> I think her her story is particularly tragic because you you mention about retirement that her pension uh because she had been prevented from working by the by the Stasi as well because her her profession I think was working in bookstores and and booksellers that a pension would be half of what a Stasi employee would get today. Yeah, I mean this this is a sort of ongoing problem um that uh, you know uh, the the last government tried to address but it hasn't really fixed but i mean a lot of people who fell foul of the state were discriminated against often at an early age uh, in a way that meant they weren't allowed to do the job that they had wanted to do or were even qualified to do so there were people who were very talented um academics or were talented doctors for example, but because they were members, they were of the of the church. They weren't allowed to to practice, and there were, there are there are, you know many many people who so who who ended up doing menial jobs that they uh, even though they were qualified to do something else. 
there's an argument that these people should get um, compensated for that. Um, that, that they because they can't now that many of them are coming to retirement, they can't they don't, they don't get the pension in a way that they deserve. But because the Stasi's you know, treatment of these people meant they, they didn't always write this down, or the, the files that show this treatment don't always survive, um, means that they really struggle to to meet the, the legal requirements. And you sometimes just you know there's a, there's a vast bureaucratic apparatus nowadays that they that sometimes run by West Germans who really didn't under, don't understand that that old system in the East. And then you have I mean so that you have people who were denied work opportunities, but you also have others who were basically, who were victims of uh, psychological warfare, essentially, on behalf of the of the Stasi, what the Stasi called Tsazetsong. Um, uh, and these people, you know, where the Stasi systematically um, destabilized them by, by eroding their trust in the people closest to them. So, I mean, where they sort of deliberately recruited people around them and um some of these people just you know they're they are physically and psychologically really unwell but how do you prove that how do you prove that in a court to, to um that that you were uh, disadvantaged like that and and the and the you know disability that you may have is is due to something the Stasi did i mean especially in west german courts um that's that's really difficult so anna Galina, i think is i felt her story was sort of really important to tell because this you know, I mean, as you said at the beginning, Stasi Poetry Circle. It sort of sounds a little bit like a like a joke, or like a. I mean, in a way, you know, it's uh, it's um, it, it's a bit Monty Python. Um, uh, but I felt um, I wanted to sort of tell a story that brought out the comic as well as the horrific aspect of uh, that absurdity. It's well, well worth reading the detail that you you have there about Anna Grit. So in the the nineteen eighties, the the Stasi is as you say, trying to pro- get more professionalised. And they also decide they need more people familiar with poetry because they're worried about subversion with even officially published poems about people sort of just inserting like hidden messages into poems. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, largely that paranoia was paranoia. And then and then there are, there's the odd, um, there's the odd case where, you had East German writers who were deliberately playing with the censors. So there's a famous example of a poet called Uwe Kolbe, who uh, uh, wrote a very, very long poem, and it arrived at the censor's office, and they scrutinized it and seemed to probably thought it was a bit impenetrable, but it didn't seem dangerous. And then it, it gets published in a in a journal, and then people start noticing that uh, you know, if you if you take the first letter of every um, line, another poem, a secret poem, emerges. Do you want me to read it out? Yeah, let's hear an excerpt. This will be a first having a poem read out on Cold War conversations. <laughs> so the poem that uh, this uh, that Uwe Kolbe's poem from nineteen eighty one which had a, a sort of secret poem hidden inside it. It goes, um, Your measures are miserable, your demands enough for bootlickers. Your formerly blood-red flag blows into a sluggish belly. To the victims of your heroism, I dedicate an orgasm. May you mighty old men be torn apart by the daily revolution. So there were instances like that where actually... People were inserting hidden messages, um, and that was something that I think um, the Stasi was getting nervous about. In at least one instance, this Stasi poetry circle became a sort of recruitment ground for uh, specialist informants that the Stasi wanted to have and wanted to basically train in reading poetry and then pluck into uh, into East Germany's literary scene to have someone who could spy on it really well so there was one member a very talented young guy who who was in this circle who did then uh, after after his um, i mean he was actually a, a soldier doing his sort of um 
his military service in this in this regiment, but then afterwards is um, recruited as an as an informant um, uh, while he mingles with with uh, uh, other writers. He's um, seen by um, Berger as um, being quite talented, isn't he? Is this um, Alexander Ruka? Yeah, so this is, a, this is a character called Alexander Ruka, which you, whom I sort of, I mean, his just his poems just sort of stood out to me in these um, uh, anthologies uh, because they were better than the others. I mean, a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of them were awful. A lot of them are really awful poems. <laughs> um, uh, but his sort of seemed to be interesting. Um, and I don't mean in a sort of mu- musical sense necessarily, but in the sense that um, they had interesting ideas in them. They had little contradictions in them. They had uh, little metaphors in them. And he, yeah, he was technically accomplished as well. So he wrote a, a, um, a poem, which is really, I mean, it's a description of a monument outside um, Lviv. Um, uh, and it's um, a monument to the uh, Red Riders, and it's a sort of bronze, a vast bronze uh, sculpture. But he describes it in an incredibly vivid way, where you, you know, by the end of the poem, you feel you're on horseback riding with these, um, uh, with the red cavalry. It's just, I was just struck by when, I mean, so Ruka stood out to me, and then I interviewed, I got other people from this group to talk to me, and they all said, yeah, I mean, he was, he was the really talented guy. Or our teacher seemed to think he was the really talented guy because. He just loved that poem. He, didn't, he never praised us, but he loved this particular poem. And that seemed, that seemed sort of interesting to me. And I was sort of trying to work out uh, why that may have been until it sort of uh, looked to me from the files later that, um, that he was actually being, that, that praise was, was also a way to, uh, to, to sort of groom him a little bit to, mm. to, um, you know, but through praise, to uh, to bring him into the into the fold, um, so Ruka was someone I tried to contact for a long time, uh, and and he never really got back to me. I mean, the interesting thing that I could see that even though he was he clearly had talent, he the only thing that I could find with his name was a detective. So he was, I mean, he basically privatized himself after the fall of the war and became uh, a private eye for a bit and had a sort of detective agency, or which also did security for buildings um so i had an address and i had an email um and i tried and uh, dropped off letters and emailed him and rang him but he um he never got back uh until i um i then sort of thought i'd get go the other way and and see can i find the people he spied on um or he was set to spy on and with there i eventually struck gold in that I, I found a, a, a met up with a novelist called Gerd Neumann who um, had been, who had remembered that when I told him the story that, yes, there was a, someone who drove, he said, he drove, he took a taxi from Berlin to Leipzig. And he said halfway through the, or a couple, a couple well, about half an hour into the taxi journey, he realized that this guy was not just a taxi driver, he was a spy, asked to, um, spy on him and that's true there's a report at the end of it and he said this guy is your alexander royker guy i remember um so i suddenly had this other it was like having a sort of other camera i mean it was you know weirdly writing a book like this you end up feeling a bit like you're doing es- espionage um i suddenly had like i had the other guy in the car pointing and, and so i had a had a, a different account and um uh, the, what was interesting was the, the, the sense that I got um, from from that meeting was that Ruika was I mean, was, I mean it was the sense that I already got from the poems that he was quite torn between wanting to be a spy and really wanting to be a writer, um, and um, that was sort of confirmed by what was sort of gone on in this um, in this taxi journey. I mean, you know, by the end he'd agreed to give this writer some poems so he could publish in a journal. Um, and even the Stasi was quite invested in this. It wanted it, it sort of followed this up for months afterwards, saying, "Did you get those poems published?" Um, anyway, um, I sort of felt, okay, maybe this uh, how I can get Ruka to agree to talk to me, and 
So uh, um, I asked a novelist to write a letter to, I said, you know, how about you? Well, how about we meet up, the three of us, have a, a little reunion? Uh, they, this taxi journey had taken place in 1987. Uh, and so we met in first time in 2018, or maybe, not, maybe it was 2019. Um, we met um, for... Uh, at a restaurant in on the outskirts of Berlin, uh, and yeah, it was a very uh, interesting conversation to to sort of try and that 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 I think by the end felt like it had sort of bridged the divide between victims and perpetrators a bit. Or there's plenty of um, characters in this book. I mean, one one of the ones that that did uh, come out quite strongly to me was that this period of the 1980s when the Pershing and cruise missiles were being deployed by NATO and the Soviets had the SS-20. And there was obviously alarm in Europe, but also in East Germany. And one of the uh, Stasi employees actually writes a, a poem, which isn't strictly st sticking to the correct ideological lines. This is a young uh, officer in the Stasi's uh, propaganda unit called Gerd Knauer. Uh, he was a sort of, he was a smart guy. I mean, he was sometimes a little bit too smart for his own good, I would say. I mean, he, um, but he, he got away with it. I mean, he, you know, I think um, he was maybe a little bit, yeah, he's quite, he was, he knew that he was, he was also a decent writer and he could, he could, um, he could write well. East Germany's official line, if you, Look in the little political, political dictionary is that, uh, well, you know, peace is something that's, that is the official policy is peace of, of the East German uh, regime. So you don't need a peace movement because the, the party already provides the peace. Um, and, uh, and yet there is a sort of, uh, there's a peace movement, um, sort of mainly grown. that grows around, uh, Protestant church in, in East Germany. Um, and you know, people uh, organize little marches. It's it's all a little bit um, smaller, but um, yeah, it's not something that the, the state is uh, that tolerates. You know, the, um, and East Germany is is sort of more. It doesn't it doesn't want to admit that anyone could be scared in this in this game of uh, Cold War chess. Uh, and yet, Gerd Knauer at this time. Uh, writes a long, mad poem, 52 pages long, called The Bang, which is um, uh, about nuclear war. It starts with a loud bang, and, the, and the, suddenly the world is on fire. And <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's a sort of strange uh, science fiction apocalyptic tale of a narrator who then becomes... Odysseus uh, and runs through history, and uh, people, uh, there are mountains of dead corpses and bones. People become their survivors, start cannibalizing each other, and eat stew made out of uh, nuclear bugs. I mean, it's it's pretty uh, bizarre, but it, um, uh, it has some interesting. I mean, it, it, it says, I'm scared. You know, it's, it's, their, their line says, this, you know, I have, it's, it's an expression of, of fear, which is something that uh, the, this, the regime didn't want to admit that its citizens had, and certainly the Stasi wasn't meant to, mm. to be actually in, in this balance of fear to, 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 to show that it, it was scared. And there's a really interesting little um, section, I mean, again, Highly strange, this poem. The, the, the narrator runs into an ivory tower where suddenly there are all these German and Greek philosophers who sit there and they're all a bit like, oh, I don't, <laughs> don't have an answer. It's the end of the world. Um, I can't give you an answer. And, and then it says, one guy, a man with a beard, gets up and it's Marx and he shakes his head and says, well, I think they're doing it because of me. <laughs> so he reads out this poem in the, in the circle. I mean, there was one woman, as far as I could tell, who attended this circle. Um, she got up after he read it and ran to the toilet to uh, to throw up because it was so disgusting, some of the detail in the poem. 
And Uwe Berger, the teacher, uh, sort of says, you know, it's very technically accomplished. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, um, we'll talk. You know, th thank you. That's the end of the lesson. And um, so the the interesting thing is that Uwe Berger wrote a report on this poem where he scrutinized uh, some uh, some of the aspects, particularly this this bit about uh, Marx. Uh, and where he, he says that sort of the, uh, the question of guilt is not answered unambiguously, where he says, um, our own people are suggesting that if there's a nuclear war, it's because of Marx, Marxism. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so that's the, this is, this is turned out to be one of the other functions of the, um, Stasi Poetry Circle that, um, the guy seemingly innocent, brought in to uh, to just teach them about verse was actually ended up spying on the spies as the spies turned our poets yeah so it's the classic the watchers watching the uh, the watchers there and uh, I found Berger a, a surprising character because he wasn't even a member of the party either was he it's a really strange he was a really intriguing character I mean he's he died in 2014 so I never got to speak to him um he was confronted uh with his involvement with the Stasi before he died and, and he confessed it, he even wrote a memoir where he says, Yeah, I did it. But he sort of down downplayed his activity. He was so he was part of that um you know what in Germany is known as the Flakhelfer generation. So the the mm. the teenagers who were drafted into the war machine in the in the in the last days of the Third Reich and were um, uh, made to to man or hold anti-aircraft uh, machine guns. Um, so he was he was still a teenager when he was drafted into 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 that into the war effort. And um, it seems to have, like many of that generation, it seems it, it traumatized them. And he um, that's certainly how. His story, I mean, he wrote about this experience in memoirs, but also in his poetry, and uh, he just makes it sound very much like that sort of made it impossible for him to ever join a political organization or, or you know, having been traumatized by this experience or bullied into the army, which he describes as a very inhumane, I mean, you know, it says he, he writes a lot about the, Horrible treatment that the soldier amongst uh, you know, um, amongst soldiers and how they they all bullied each other uh, and 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 beat each other or beat the older ones beat the younger ones and so that sort of seemed to have been his explanation for not joining the Socialist Unity Party, which seemed to have been pretty much mandatory for anyone else who wanted to attain an official function in uh, in East Germany. And yet, Uwe Berger was not only a you know highly prolific poet but he had all sorts of um functions within the um these literary societies in uh, in east germany and then he's asked to to come into the stasi and uh and uh to to teach these poems uh, these these spies how to write poetry and he agrees well so um it turned out that yeah he, all the while he was not a member of the party he was in fact, one of their one of the Stasi's most prolific uh, and productive informants on on the literary scene. And there's no there's no real evidence that he was coerced into. Uh... No, I mean not from the not from the files. And um, I mean, he in his memoirs he makes it sound. He sa he says, you know, oh, I had I had. He sort of makes it sound as if he had these red lines where he would no, do no um, proactive approaches. He would merely report on what he was doing anyway. But if that was the case at the beginning, it certainly wasn't by the end of his uh, activity. I mean, he, you know, I mean, he borrowed manuscripts from friends who were also writers and handed them. You know, straight to the Stasi, or copied them out, handed them to the Stasi, the copy to the Stasi, and then gave them back. Mm. He um, wrote about the films that his friends were watching with their children at home, uh, the jokes that they told. Um, he eventually um, 
even proposed sort of um, put downs that the Stasi could use to um, to sideline writers that he didn't think were ideologically on on board or rivals to him possibly as well. Yeah, I think. I mean, uh, uh, I think that would. I mean, to me, that would explain or that explained uh, his success to to a degree because um, from what I could tell, um, his books weren't, I mean, mean, personally, I I didn't like his poem. I didn't didn't understand why he was so widely published because his poetry was just really dull to me. And then I thought maybe that's just my taste and it's a sort of cultural gap. But then, you know, um, I read that the, the, he wasn't well-reviewed. Um, his books didn't sell. I saw, I looked in the, in the publisher's archive, his books didn't sell. And his, it turned out, I mean, certainly by the 80s, his editors there hated him too. I mean, they they, they, they didn't, um, they just thought his poems, his books were awful. And they said, that they said you know, this, these were socialists and Marxists, um, but they they were from a, of a different generation. And to the, to to them, he was just an old, sentimental sort of someone who just um, had a very simple worldview where the Soviet Union was good and everything else was bad. And yeah. um, they said, "That's um, uh, we they were like we can't publish this anymore." So what does he do? He writes a report on the, his editor to the Stasi, and then the book gets published. And then he, so he he writes a memoir uh, that uh, he he wrote two memoirs, but he in in the second one published after the fall of the war, he, he writes a little bit about this Stasi activity. And then he makes it sort of sound as if, okay, well, then I grew tired of, uh, you know, this, this work is, you know, he says, mm-hmm. um, as a, as an artist, I cannot be confronted with the negative aspects of life all the time. So I have to, he said, I, I had enough. And, uh, I said, I, w- I want to thank you. I, I enjoyed my, t- my time in the, w- for you working for you as an informant, but I had enough. And then he makes it sound uh, like he, um, the Stasi, and said, "Oh well, why don't you run this this poetry circle?" Only he then starts spying again on the people in the in the Stasi uh, and uh, writes reports on um, on their poems, questioning uh, uh, you know uh, questioning the meanings of their poems, whether they um, perhaps are trying to suggest that they want to escape over to the West when they write one and writes a poem about a cu- flying a kite. And he says, well, that could be a metaphor for trying to escape from our beautiful socialist state. I, that, I think that was the sort of the reversal that to me gave, gave the, the, this, this, this research project some, some structure. That this, there was an interesting mm-hmm. reversal in it. So as the GDR starts to implode in the late 80s, what, what happens to the... Uh the uh, working circle of the writing checkists so they there's a so one of the so i mentioned before that the that this the writing checkists before they uberberger came in to turn it into a professional outfit it, it was sort of a bit sporadic a bit ramshackle uh and uh it was run by um a, an an officer who had i mean his poems were he loved poems that rhymed they were sort of very jolly little ditties um they were always yeah yeah he seemed to he seemed a very sort of fun character who loved uh, 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 loves quite trivial poetry but i was struck so one of the poems that i find so as you get to the point where you start to have these liberal reforms around the soviet bloc not least in in Russia itself, but also in Hungary, in Poland, in the Czech Republic. There's suddenly all this movement. There's, there's suddenly this this um, this solid block becomes starts to have movement, and it seems that to East Germans in particular, they because they were so loyal, they to they, they were the most sort of loyal satellite state. This is a very confusing and disorientating time, and it suddenly shows up in the poetry. Um, uh, even before you have, I mean, there's one guy who writes a sort of stream of consciousness poem about nuclear uh, fear of nuclear war, and so on. So that that gets a little bit interesting. A, a different the, the tone changes there, but this guy, this officer who used to be the most trivial and fun-loving of the lot, suddenly writes a 
a poem that just suddenly uh, it has a really dark turn. I mean, it's, there's, it's a poem that is called Don't Get Yourself in a Spin. And it, um, it sort of seems to just a poem about depression, about, about feeling that the world is turning and he can't keep up. Um, and, and, uh, and he can't get any, anywhere. Nothing is, is, is still. Everything is crumbling. So that's um, uh, something that's sort of interesting is showing up in in, uh, in, the, in this time, and yet, so the the Stasi is uh, dis, uh, decides it wants to produce another anthology of poems for the uh, 40th anniversary of the of the GDR in 1989, and Uwe Berger is charged with editing it, and he and he picks these poems, and I mean the interesting thing is that uh, these are all the poems. From that period, I in sort of one file in the archive, but you can see which ones were made it into the final edition and which didn't. Um, and so you can see that he was sort of trying to block out the the doubt and the confusion and the alienation, and was was just focusing on these sort of marching songs essentially. Again, the anthology is called. Uh, with my raised fist, I think, um, or in my raised fist, it's sort of like everything is on track. Um, uh, the war is going to be up yeah. for nothing's for, going wrong. Nothing is um, the other way. Nothing to see. Nothing to see. <laughs> uh, um, but clearly, yeah, clearly it wasn't. I mean, so this anthology, there's a there's a permission for it to get printed, but uh, even even after the fall of the wall, but it, it never makes its way to yeah. the to the printer. You mentioned earlier about the Stasi being, well, uh, certainly Becker being fond of sonnets um, and certain types of poem. Did the Stasi have a view on limericks? <laughs> I think they would have. I, I, have, I have not found a, limerick, a Stasi limerick. Uh, oh, that's a shame. And if I do find one, I will, I will give you the exclusive on the Cold War Conversations podcast. That would have been lovely. I mean, they, um, I, uh, I mean, I was trying to think whether there's any. I mean, limericks are usually a bit dirty, aren't they? And scatological or sexual. Uh, uh, yeah. But, but um, I was just trying to think whether they had. I mean, there, there was a bit of love, <laughs> love poetry going on. But I don't think there's. I mean, supposedly the uh, thing that one of the things that. Berger didn't like was that um, in these poetry circles and factories, the workers wrote these uh, poems that were just about sex and shitting. <laughs> Someone, one report said, claimed, and so I think he was uh, he was making sure if if anyone did write a poem like that, they they would be kicked out. So no limericks, I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh, okay. I can live with that disappointment. The book is called the Stasi Poetry Circle. We are doing a book giveaway uh, with this episode. We're going to have three copies to give away. Details of how to be in the chance to win one will be in the um, episode notes. So uh, do make sure you uh, check that out. But it's well worth a read. There's some fascinating stories in there. I learned a lot about poetry. I, I am it. Pentameters was it? I, iambic, yeah. Iambic pentameters. Mm-hmm. I'm not known for my pronunciation on this <laughs> podcast, so uh, it's not surprising I got that wrong. But some incredible characters in there, and some amazing stories that I certainly hadn't heard before and didn't know about. So, if you're interested in East Germany and uh, the Stasi, this is an angle that you've definitely never heard before. Lucky listeners can win one of three free copies of the book by checking out our prize draw, which is detailed in the episode notes. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous patrons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a patron by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.